0: Good morning. I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of surprised to see so many people here. Brave souls, brave souls. Because as we found out this morning, not every forecast is correct. And we experienced a couple showers. But we are here now and we are going to hear from God's word. We're going to worship together. So it's good to be Preaching, I haven't been able to take the pulpit in quite some time. It feels like forever, and it feels good to be here. If you couldn't tell, uh, Pastor Lou is on vacation. Um, so we just, you know, let's continue to pray that this is a restful time for him as he is away, gets some time with his family, and just gets to take a break. So pray for him. Also just want to remind you that if you if you missed it, last week was the wrap-up of our eight-week series on the uh, study of Revelation, the first three chapters, the letter to the seven churches. Um, it was a series. It was, you know, it was full of some heavy truth dealing with the reality of sin, but it was also a very good reminder of the the hope that we have in Christ and the grace that he even extends in giving such warning. So uh, if you missed any of those, the entire series is up on our website, kingschapel.net. I encourage you to, to check those out if you missed any of them. And on that same note, in a couple of weeks we'll be starting a new series for the summer titled The Ten Commandments, A Gospel Perspective. Now, thanks to Charlton Heston, we're all familiar with the Ten Commandments, I think. At least a certain age bracket is familiar. Um, But we want to look at these Ten Commandments as they they were intended to be seen, not merely as a list of do's and don'ts, but through the lens of the gospel, the Ten Commandments is a beautiful response to being redeemed and brought in as a part of God's family. So uh, those commandments, if you're, if you're not sure where to find them in the Bible, you just know they might exist. They're in Exodus chapter 20. And I would encourage you as we approach this series To be not just reading through the commandments, but but read the story leading up to it. Read the context after it. See the full picture of where these commandments sit. And see the full picture of God's goodness and God's faithfulness as we move toward that series. But today, we're going to do something a little different. It's actually just a standalone message. Not part of a series or anything. And we're going to be looking at one of the parables of Jesus told in the gospel according to Luke. It's going to be um, it's going to be a little bit before we actually get to the parable itself. Uh, but if if you want to turn there, or if you have your note sheet, uh, I think every single verse of the parable is on that for you to follow along. Uh, it's going to be the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, as I'm calling it this morning, a tale of two sinners. Ooh, but I want to just spend a little time talking about. A little rain, a little, a little drip here. <laughs> don't want to get that on me. Um, I just want to spend a little time talking about parables in general. Because uh, I don't want to sit here and just assume everybody understands parables and everybody understands how to read them and um, interpret them. Uh, so what I want to look at is you see on, uh, on your notes, uh, if you're here for the service, if you're following along at home, I'll just tell you about it. Uh, that there are are four literary styles. There could be more, but these are the four big literary styles that we see in parables. Because understanding the style that Jesus uses when he gives these parables is really important to understanding how to interpret it and take out the meaning for what he's trying to say. So here are four examples. The first thing is a similitude. These are types of parables that use simile or direct comparison to communicate the point. So those are parables that start with Jesus saying the kingdom of God is like, right? That's a simile uh, comparison using like or as. So we see these in Matthew 13 with the parable of the mustard seed, the yeast and the dough, the treasure, in the hidden field, the, yeah, the hidden treasure in the field. Um, there's a direct comparison. That's a certain style of parable. This is like this, and that's what Jesus says, and that is how we would interpret that. Then there's metaphoric parables, a parable that compares two things, but instead of doing this is like this, it just thrusts what it's like right on the subject. We see that in Matthew 5 when Jesus says, you are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's a metaphor. Then we have epigrams. These are our sayings or remarks used to teach the point in a clever way. They're often somewhat satirical in nature. Uh, For example, another one from Matthew. Jesus asks this question. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? See, he uses a clever question to point out uh, a truth about the danger of false prophets. And that sounds different than maybe a metaphor sounds. And that sounds different than maybe how a simile sounds. So all these things require a different way of How how are we processing this? What was Jesus' purpose? And then the fourth one is narrative. These are stories that Jesus tells to communicate his point. These stories, they're varied in length, but they typically have a plot that you can follow. You got characters, you got a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's some kind of conclusion to it. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the prodigal son, Our parable this morning is the Pharisee and the tax collector. That falls into the narrative category. We're going to see Jesus tell a small story about two people who go into the temple to pray. So knowing these different styles informs us on how to study the parable. Because we we don't want to err in that. We don't want to try and study a parable that's written in one way the way we would something else. If I studied a narrative like a similitude, things are going to get wacky. Uh, An example that Fee and Stewart give in their book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, uh, they tell a somewhat amusing story of how an improper reading of a parable can really miss the point. And now they describe how a brilliant scholar, Augustine, or Augustine, depending on your pronunciation preference, he takes the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a narrative parable, which Jesus tells to communicate the point that everyone is our neighbor. We don't get to pick and choose who our neighbor is. We don't get to pick and choose who we love and treat with dignity, value, and worth. He takes, Augustine looked at that parable, but instead of looking at it as a narrative, he decided, I'm going to look at this as an allegory. Meaning, I'm going to take every bit and piece from this and attribute something to that. So, for example... Uh, the parable starts by saying a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Instead of just that being a man who walks down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he says, you know, this person's Adam. And you know what? Jerusalem actually is referring to the heavenly city of peace that Adam fell from. And Jericho actually symbolizes Adam's mortality and that the thieves in the story, if you know the story, are actually the devils and his angels, who strip Adam of his immortality. And he keeps going on and on like this. Eventually he arrives at the conclusion that the innkeeper at the end of the story that the Samaritan brings this man to is actually somehow referring to the Apostle Paul. That's not the point of the parable. <laughs> Jesus uses narrative to describe to his audience to someone who asks the question, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells him, this is your neighbor, Everyone. That's why he uses the Samaritan as the character to. Well, this is not about that parable. But anyway, that's the point of that parable. Not to come up with some crazy allegory to find all this hidden meaning. Most of the time, parables, the meaning's not that hidden. Prop, proper exegesis can go awry when we interpret one type of literature as another. Allegories exist but we can't place allegorical interpretation onto narratives and vice versa. So understanding literary style is important. I think uh, it was worth noting. Maybe for some of you, you were like, yeah, no duh. But maybe some of you were like, well, that was rather enlightening. Okay. I'm happy with that. Um, anyway, so with, uh with literary style also comes context. Context is important. Who Jesus is talking to when he tells the parable is important for understanding what he's meaning with the parable. And today we're going to see in our text that the audience is abundantly clear. Luke just tells us straight who he's talking to. And this context gives us the the ability to see the intent that Jesus was going for when he told this story. And once we figure out Jesus' original intent for the original audience, only then can we apply it to ourselves. Because unless you are extremely old, you were not sitting there when Jesus was talking. Anyway, so with that groundwork laid, let's look at this parable. We're going to look at it through four headings. We have the problem, the Pharisee, the publican, fancy King James word for tax collector, and the point. Those are our four movements Through this text. So, with all that said, let's read this parable together. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Jesus says, um, Luke says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. A sinner. I tell you, this man went down from his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So let's first look at the problem. Charles Spurgeon once said. Ever since man became a sinner, he has been self righteous. When he had a righteousness of his own, he never gloried of it, but ever since he has lost it, he has pretended to be the possessor of it. See, that self righteousness that Spurgeon refers to there is the problem set before us in this passage this morning. See, as I mentioned before, Luke leaves no confusion on who Jesus was talking to in our text. It says, Those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. No confusion there. Jesus is dealing with a group of self righteous people. People who trust in themselves and treat others with contempt. These two things, they almost go hand in hand. Because if you make yourself the pinnacle, Of all morality and all that is righteous, you will inevitably look down on others as less than yourself because you're the man. Nobody else compares. So that's what happens when you're self-righteous. And this mindset was taught as kind of the way by the Pharisees and other religious leaders at the time. Jesus was probably talking to a mixture of Pharisees and other religious leaders and and. Pharisee disciples who are being trained in those ways. So he wasn't, Jesus wasn't dealing with a new problem. As we heard from Spurgeon, this has been a problem since the fall of man. And this is a problem that continues to permeate our world today. Self-righteousness, if left unchecked, will undoubtedly rear its ugly head in anyone's life. And that's why I, think we need this parable today as much as Jesus' audience did back then. But again, we need to just remind ourselves of the importance of allowing the context to dictate the meaning of the text. Because I was reading a commentary this week and they started off with, this is a parable about how to pray. Well, Now, as much as this parable uses the prayers of two people to hit home the point, the primary focus of this parable is not how to pray. The primary focus of this parable is dealing with the problem of the attitude of self-righteousness and superiority, which will inevitably show itself in prayer. Jesus is just using that as an example as a descriptive way to illustrate the attitude of self-righteousness and the humble, not necessarily a prescriptive way of how we are to pray. We can see that in Matthew 6, if you want to know how Jesus says, pray like this. Um, but the problem here is, is a heart problem. The heart infected by sin, in particular, the sin of self-righteousness. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the problem isn't necessarily their prayer life, but their heart that needs, or at least the Pharisees' heart that needs to be shaped and molded and humbled. And when our sinful heart's desire is to find righteousness in ourselves, our actions and our attitude reflect what is going on in our hearts. And only a heart changed by the gospel through the power of the Spirit will produce a change in action and an attitude. So that's the problem Jesus is addressing in this parable. So let's get into it. He starts his parable and he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. He could not have put two more opposite people together in this story. See, within that culture, the Pharisee, they represented the holy and the godly and the tax collector, the vile sinner. The Pharisee would have had the utmost respect. And the tax collector would have garnered the utmost resentment. And Jesus takes these polar opposites, places them together in the temple at the same time. That thought of loan would have made this audience cringe. The Pharisee walking in with the tax collector? <sighs> See, if they looked at others with contempt, they really looked at tax collectors with contempt. As Jesus begins this parable, those listening would have automatically assumed, well, two people are going in, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Well, the Pharisee is going to be the hero of this story. The tax collector is going to be the villain. That's how their mind was thinking. However, that's not the narrative that Jesus tells. Let's take a look at the Pharisee. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you. I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. See what Jesus describes here is he gives us a pretty substantial profile of what self-righteousness looks like. I want to break that down into four attributes. So four attributes of self of the self righteous. Number 1, the self righteous person's favorite company is themselves. So Jesus tells the audience the Pharisee stands by himself. That's quite telling just by itself. He he doesn't stand by himself for privacy, quiet time with God. He doesn't stand by himself for the purpose of social distancing. The Pharisee stands by himself because there's no one else he deems worthy to stand near him. He stands alone so he can be seen, so he can be in the limelight. That he's the center, he's the focus. His favorite company is himself. So that's the first thing we can see. The second thing, a self-righteous person is always glad to compare themselves against others To validate their own morality. See standing in the spotlight he begins to pray. And he begins with God for a split second. But then quickly moves to who he really wants to talk about. And in this moment the Pharisee seems to morph into country music star Toby Keith. Talk about me. Wanna talk about I? Wanna talk about number one? Oh my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. <laughs> it's been in my head all week. I just had to. I mean, it's not the best thing to have in your head. Walking around the house, I wanna talk about me. Katie's sick of it. I can tell you that. But the entirety of his prayer, he says, he says God, so that looks good. But the entirety of his prayer becomes self-centered. It's all about who he is and what he has done. Look at this. He says, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. See, a self-righteous person is always glad to compare themselves against others to validate their own morality. He gives thanks to God, but not for God's goodness, not for God's faithfulness and grace towards him. No, he's thanking God that he's essentially better than everybody else. He says, I'm not like other men. I'm different. I'm holy. I'm good. I'm righteous. These other men, (laughs) they're sinners. He's above them. He specifically decides to zero in on the tax collector. He calls out a fellow worshiper. See, this Pharisee should have been pointing the tax collector to God, encouraging him to pursue godliness in love. Rather, he stands and he mocks him openly. And this was not meant to merely just bolster his own self-esteem. These words were intended to tear the tax collector down They were not just an observation, but a total insult. What the Pharisee fails to remember is what should have been familiar words to him, both in Psalm 14 and 53. They say, there is none who does good, not even one. But the Pharisee doesn't see his own sinfulness because he's comparing himself to other people. This is how he validates himself honing in on their flaws but that's not how god measures our righteousness we're judged by one standard god's standard of perfection and against that standard we all fall short romans 3:23 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god though in all honesty it wouldn't shock me to see the pharisee in this story look at god's standard and actually think, I could top that. I could top that. Right? That's the kind of over-the-top pompous attitude Jesus is portraying in the Pharisee, in this parable. There's not a humble bone in his body. Now, while we're talking about looking at other people's sin and, and that kind of comparison, I just want to be clear. What I'm not saying is that we shouldn't point out blatant sin in one another's lives. What I am saying is that we merely pointed out for the purpose of puffing ourselves up, we're sinning. If we see another brother or sister walking in sin, we should be able to address that, but it should be done in love, in a proper way. We see that time and time again in the scriptures, right? We studied First and Second Samuel. We saw Nathan do it to David. The result was Repentance. We see Paul do it to Peter in Galatians. Both of these examples, sin was called out for the purpose of repentance and done so in love. The purpose of having the transgressor transgressor see the error of their sin and turn from it. That's the point of it. And just to be doubly clear, these conversations aren't meant to be had in the middle of corporate worship where it was happening in this parable. If I have a problem with someone, it would be really awkward if I just brought it up right now. Chris? (laughs) Just kidding. He's the man. He makes like all this happen. Oh, Kachano, now. No, just kidding. Also the man. So many of the men here. Um, But it's not a time and place to do it. In gospel relationships, there's a healthy way to give and receive correction. Because on the other side of things, if someone calls us out on our sin, what we also just can't do to try and dismiss it is go, well, you're being a Pharisee. Don't talk about my sin. You're being a Pharisee. We can't do that either. If they, if they come in the right way, in the love, and we're in gospel community together, there needs to be room to give and receive correction. I just wanna make that clear so we don't come away here going like, well, I guess we can't think about anyone else's sin ever and we can't identify that. No, we can. But there's a right and a wrong way to do it. And uh, just tossing it into a prayer, a public prayer at that would probably be the very wrong way to do it as we see in this parable. So I just wanna make that clear as we're analyzing the Pharisee. I don't wanna become a a Pharisee of myself and act like I'm more self-righteous than the self-righteous Pharisee. You can see how this cycle could just go on and on. So the self-righteous person compares themselves against others to validate their own morality. That was number two. Number three, a self-righteous person will constantly look for flaws in others while rarely looking inward at themselves. See, when someone is so convinced of their moral uprightness, they will never see past the sinful flaws in others. They just can't. The self-righteous person um, will see everybody else as inferior because they will always see themselves as superior. So the question we can ask ourselves is just to keep ourselves in check. Am I quick to point out other sin, but slow to acknowledge my own? Am I quick to point out other sins, but slow to acknowledge my own? We should be doing the reverse, right? We should be quick to acknowledge our own sin and maybe slower to jump down other people's throats. Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't when needed, but it shouldn't be our favorite pastime. So that's number three. Number four, the self-righteous person needs others to recognize them as morally superior. This is where we get to the second part of the prayer. Verse 12. He then just, here's my accomplishments. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. See, the law itself, there was one real mandatory, this is when you have to fast. And that was during the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That's when fasting was mandatory. Same thing in the law, that the law didn't require tithes on every single thing. It required tithes on some things, like their harvests and their increases. Actually, earlier in Luke, Jesus calls the Pharisees out for tithing on their herbs, It was unnecessary. They were busy doing that and they were neglecting love and justice. See, the purpose of the law was to expose mankind's sin. But the Pharisees, they tried to over obey the law as a way to mask their sin. It's kind of like me in golf. If I hit the course, I'm going to really try to look the part. Got the hat, the polo, the shoes, When I show up, I want people to think this guy can golf until I tee off and then all bets are off. But I want to look the part so I can at least mask for a little bit. Well, he looks like a golfer. But in the end, our actions show what is true. A self-righteous needs the people to other people to look at them as superior, as morally superior law requires one day? I'll do, I'll do two, day, two days a week. How about that? Tithe on some things? I'm tithing everything. Other people may care about that. You may garner a following trying to live like that, trying to be the overly moral person. But at the end of the day, God, God does not care about good deeds done for selfish, self-righteous reasons. Right? Isaiah 64, all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. That's not to say God doesn't care about uh, obedience and good deeds. He does when it's done as a joyful response to his redeeming us and calling us into his family. But not when it's done to show off or to try in some way earn our own righteousness. The self-righteous person may be able to convince themselves they're the best of the best, that they're holy, that they're the pinnacle of perfection, but that's not a good work. There's not a good work we could do that could somehow trick God into thinking that we are righteous in and of ourselves. If that were the case, Christ would not have had to come. Christ would have stayed in glory if we could have somehow lived good enough. But we can't, we don't self-righteous person may feel as though they're above other sinners, but they too are sinners nonetheless. So we must examine ourselves regularly. We must ask ourselves, am I just looking to make myself feel better and look better? Are, are other image bearers of God just mere tools to stroke my ego? Do I put m- too much stock in all that I do and de- neglecting to take a moment to even ask, Where do I fall short? See, the sin of self-righteousness will rear its ugly face in each one of our lives if we don't look to the cross. The cross reminds us of just how perfect and holy God is and how greatly flawed and sinful we are. But it also shows us that we are so loved and so cherished by God that he was willing to take the most extreme measure to redeem us. Tim Keller puts put this even better in his book, The Reason for God. He says, The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think of myself More, nor do I think of my less of myself. Instead, I just think of myself less. End quote. How do we combat self righteousness? We look to Christ, we cling to Christ and all that He has done. Now let's look at the other sinner in the temple as we move ahead quickly the publican, or as I mentioned earlier, tax collector. See, after Jesus describes the actions of the Pharisee, he turns his attention to the other one, the one that the people would have despised, to the tax collector. And believe it or not, there are actually some similarities between these guys. right? We see they're both standing by themselves. Both of them want space. It says he's standing far off, verse 13. However, the tax collector wasn't standing far off so that he would be noticed. He was standing far off so he wouldn't be noticed. He was in such anguish over his sin that he couldn't bear to be among the other people. Not because he thought himself better than them, rather the exact opposite. Pride and shame can almost yield the same result. When we are so full of ourselves, we want to do our own thing because no one else is good enough to join us in it. But... When we are so full of guilt and shame, we want to do our own thing because no one wants to be around me. I I can't bear to be around other people because I'm just so bad and we both end up in isolation. And the sad thing in this story is that the one who already feels such shame is being shamed further by the one who is supposed to be godly. Godly. And the reality is outside of this parable in real life at that time, this is how Pharisees were making people feel. This is how people were being treated. Jesus didn't make up some kind of obscure over the top scenario. He's, he's basically painting a clear picture for this is what's happening. And I think about this situation. I think of how many people have walked into churches feeling the shame And the message they receive is more shame, more guilt. That's not the gospel. That's not how the church was meant to be. See, when sin is called out, hope should be given. The hope of Christ. No one can truly, really come to Christ without acknowledging their sinfulness. But at the same time, we can never truly experience the freedom that comes from knowing for Christ if we don't rest in the fact that he dealt with that shame. It's gone. Christ bore our shame on the cross. When we trust in him and believe in him by the power of the spirit, we shed that shame and put on his righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. I'd pray that we would see that this morning. Also note that the tax collector's posture in this. He's standing far off and he's not lifting his eyes to heaven. His shame keeps his head down from the others. It keeps his head down from God himself. His posture is a stark contrast to the Pharisee who's standing there proud. <laughs> Look at me. And the tax collector bows his head, humbles himself, And in that posture, he begins his prayer. He's beating his chest. Is that physical sign of lament and sorrow. And he prays this simple yet honest prayer. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What more could he ask? See, when one is so acutely aware of his sin, there is nothing to boast about. All he can do is humble himself before a righteous God and ask for mercy. See, even if this tax collector was as bad of a scoundrel as the Pharisee made him out to be, at least he sees the error of his ways and he falls on the mercy of God. See, a sinner who understands he's a sinner and desires to repent is in a better place than a self-righteous person who thinks he has no sin at all. In this short prayer... God be merciful to me, a sinner demonstrates that the tax collector actually has a greater understanding of who God is than the Pharisee seems to who God is and, and how man responds to that. Look, the tax collector, he understands one that God is holy. He understands that God is perfect, that God is just as he recognizes he is a sinner. Two, he recognizes that God, though just, perfect, and holy, is also a God of mercy. And he prays, be merciful to me. And then he understands that a just, holy, and perfect God will extend that mercy even to sinners who come to him by grace through faith. Because the only way we see that we need God's mercy is by the grace of God opening our eyes to it. And what we see in this parable is that the one who should understand that fact, the Pharisee, he doesn't. And the one who shouldn't understand it because he's so terrible, gets it. That's the point Jesus is making to this self-righteous audience. And that's the point he tells them as we look at uh, point number four, the point. He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector went down to his house, justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, when Jesus concludes in this way, I can assure you that those listening were not happy. Jesus just told them the tax collector went home right before God and the Pharisee didn't. How could he say that? He just turned their entire culture on its head. Now, Jesus didn't teach them anything the scriptures didn't already teach. Remember, Abraham was counted as righteous because of his faith. Justification has always been by faith alone. So Jesus didn't turn the scriptures upside down. He, he turned their self-righteous culture upside down. He took the system that glorified the outside and showed that God looks on the heart. See, the self-righteous person can keep trying within their own strength to do enough to earn God's favor, but there's nothing that we can possibly do that comes close to God's perfection. We can keep trying to validate ourselves by looking down at others and trying to make them admire us, but at the end of the day, it doesn't make our sin look any less detestable to God. The only way we will uh, be viewed as righteous in God's eyes is by putting our faith in his perfect, righteous son, Jesus Christ. Because when we do that, we no longer are trying to merit our own righteousness, but we put Christ's righteousness on. And we rest in Christ's finished, perfect work. But to do that, it requires humility. A soft heart to say, God, I'm, I stink. I stink. I am terrible, but you are so good. You are so good and you love me so much. Humbling one's self. And the result of that is exaltation. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, not exalted to the the sense that now, oh, I humbled myself, now I can be praised. No, see when we're, we're humbled by the reality of our sin and the love of a holy and perfect God and we fall in his mercy through Jesus Christ, we're brought from the domain of darkness to his marvelous light. That kind of exaltation. We go from being slaves to sin to being sons and daughters of God. We're brought from death to life. That's the exaltation we're talking about. But the one who exalts himself, the one who's looking only to find morality and goodness from within, the one who desires to boast in their own deeds, they will inevitably be humbled. Because the self-righteous person will eventually see the splendor and the majesty and the perfection and the holiness of God. if it's by God's grace, they'll see it in this life. But when it's too late, they will see it as well if they do not Repent. So if if you're here this morning or you're watching this morning and you've put your stock in how good of a person you have been, I implore you, repent of that self righteousness. Fall on the mercy of Christ. If you've spent this whole time thinking about other people who fall into these categories, take a step back. Look in the mirror. I can tell you 100% of the time as I'm working on this and I'm writing out, yeah, this is what a self-righteous person looks like. I get punched in the gut. (sighs) I've done that. I've been there. I do that. I've been convicted time after time after time. We need to ask ourselves these questions just to check ourselves. Am I my own favorite person? I know it seems silly, but am am I the pinnacle of what is right and what is wrong? Am I like critical of everyone else? Two, do I compare myself to validate my own morality? Do I compare myself to everybody else going, well, at least I'm not that guy or that guy? Do we do that? And not just in in religious, pharisaical ways, in, in all ways. Am I constantly comparing myself to other people to make myself feel better? Am I quick to look for sin in other people's lives again and slow to look for sin in my own life? Do I crave that people would see me as morally superior? It is my prayer that these questions would not serve to just tear us down, but rather they would remind us of the ever-present need for Christ and the reality of the gospel that even for the self-righteous, there is redemption in Christ. There is room for repentance and forgiveness and grace. I pray that we would be reminded that we're, we're never going to be so good that we don't need God's grace. And that we're never going to be too sinful to receive it. I pray that this morning we would just fall at the feet of Jesus. That we would know his love. That we would trust him. Let's pray together if we can. Father, again, we thank you for your word. For this parable that though short, that's somewhat is simple, that it would have a profound impact on our lives, that we would see how much we desperately need you, that we would see that it takes no time at all that we would just err and start trusting in ourselves. And it's this constant battle that we only overcome through the power of your spirit. We ask that you would be at work in our hearts. Help us to look inward But that the cross would also drive us upward. And that we would see we are accepted in your eyes because of all that Christ has done when we put our faith and trust in him. We know you are merciful. And we ask, as the tax collector did, have mercy on us. We are sinners. But we're not just sinners, we are also your sinners. Children, and may we re- re- rejoice in the finished work of the gospel. That you hold us close, and there's nothing that we could do. Father, we lean on you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.